Hello again. Thanks for joining us on Space Nuts, the podcast about astronomy and space science, also heard on community radio across Australia. My name is Andrew Dunkley, your host. And coming up on this edition, we're going to be looking at the Square Kilometre Array. And the reason is because you can actually look at it because they've started building the thing. Yay! Uh, also, uh, some uh, interesting findings by the James Webb Space Telescope. Uh, Mars appears to be active, uh, much more active than we would have considered. Uh, some new evidence has uh, come to light and a bit of an update on Artemis 1 and questions about the end of the life of the sun and terraforming an ice moon. That's all to come on this edition of Space Nuts. 15 seconds, guidance is internal. 10, 9... And joining me as always is his good self, Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hi, Andrew. How are you doing? I am very well, sir. Uh, you are in sunny Adelaide, South Australia. You've been uh, you've been a busy boy. Uh, certainly travelling around the last couple of weeks, yes. I had the great pleasure, as um, I think we mentioned before the event, but I had the pleasure of accompanying the Director General of the European Southern Observatory, uh, mm. Xavier Barcons, on a sort of not a fact-finding mission, more of a celebration mission uh, to be in Australia to celebrate 60 years of the ESO, European Southern Observatory, along with some of his high-level colleagues. Uh, we had a ball. We went uh, to Perth, uh, Canberra, Sydney, talked to lots and lots of astronomers, all of whom uh, have very warm feelings towards the observatory because we're in the middle of a strategic, a 10-year strategic partnership with them. So that was great. And then, uh, yes, uh, to do with the Square Kilometre Array on uh, Monday this week. Yeah, that's uh, well. That dovetails perfectly into our first story because um, the the news has um, uh, come out that uh, it's all systems go. Uh, we're starting to see the the first uh, signs of of work in the ground. Yeah. So uh, Monday this week saw the news headlines. Actually, they hit the headlines all over Australia, which is brilliant, mm, yeah. uh, of the start of construction ceremony. So that was actually at the site where the telescope is, uh, the Murchison Radio Astronomy Observatory, also known as Inyarimana Ilgari Bundara, uh, in the Wadri Yamari language. Uh, You've been practising that, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> it's better than the last time I tried it. Um, yeah, sure. It's a lovely name, actually, Andrew. It is. It means uh, sharing stars and sky uh, right. and uh, was, was arrived at after a lot of uh, thought and consultation with the uh, Wadri people. Um, and so I wasn't actually at the celebration uh, at the site uh, on Monday. Uh, that was the ultra VIPs, the minister, our minister of uh, industry, science and technology, uh, and some very high-level people from both the observatory and the department, the government department that I work in. But there was a very nice celebration in Perth, in the city of Perth, in the evening. Uh, all the VIPs came back to join us for an evening of uh, well talks and videos, uh, some quite inspiring speeches made. Um, the uh, 
real buzz around the room, of course, was exactly what you said. Construction has now started. Uh, and it wasn't just a celebration of construction in Australia, uh, because the, the South African component, the mid-frequency component of the square kilometre array has also kicked off. Uh, we had the director general of the square kilometre array observatory, uh, uh, Phil Diamond, who normally resides in the north of England, which is where the headquarters is. He was out there, uh, had a chat with him. Um, and uh, so, yeah, celebrations all around. We had a link to the UK uh, on the uh, on the internet, and that was good too to see people over there helping to celebrate the start of this construction. Yes, it's uh, not a cheap thing to put together. What three billion dollars? Yes, that's correct. Um, of which, uh, of course, in US dollars, that's five dollars fifty. <laughs> No, that is Australian dollars, three billion. I mean, yes, that's the is. thing about you know mega projects like this, Andrew. That the only way you can build them is to have international collaborations. And so, the mm. square kilometre array observatory, I think it's fifteen nations. I should check that, but it's that sort of number. Uh, Australia's contribution will be fourteen percent. Uh, I think a lot of that's already been uh, paid up front, and so it's a very uh, you know it, it is expensive. But the the promise. Uh, of what we might learn from it, and in particular, uh, probing the dark ages of the universe, that era in the universe before the first star sweep, where the telescope will be able to see the glowing clouds of hydrogen uh, glowing in the radio frequency, cold hydrogen emits radio waves. Uh, they'll be able to map those and see you know how the how the the hydrogen that eventually formed the galaxies how how it was distributed um, yeah. very requires enormous sensitivity um a statistic that came out of our discussions on monday that i love is if you think of a, an astronaut on mars uh, and she has a mobile phone in her pocket which is switched on well the square kilometer array will be able to listen in on the conversation no way it's amazing wow it is incredible. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's uh, really exciting that the technology has advanced to a point where we can do things like that. Uh, obviously, with the James Webb Space Telescope, which is a completely different system, uh, this this will work hand in hand, I suppose, to some degree. That's right. So uh, that's the thing about all these big facilities that uh, the science that they do dovetails together. And, it, and again, it underlines the international nature of astronomy, Andrew, because, you know, if you've got individual countries, you could imagine them all vying for national prestige by building something that somebody next door has also built. Uh, mm. But that's the way it works uh, because these things are expensive and very, very specialised. In such a way that uh, each one of them provides complementary evidence. So the, the Webb telescope certainly, uh, in, in many ways, fills the gap between visible light or optical astronomy and the radio spectrum. The, you know that when you think about the kind of instruments that you use, you've got uh, you've got the big visible light telescopes. You've got the Webb telescope in the infrared. We have the ALMA telescope in northern Atacama, which is the uh, millimeter and submillimeter wave that region between the infrared and long wavelength, and then the square kilometre array filling in the long wavelength stuff. It's really remarkable. It is. Uh, when do we expect it to be operational? Well, uh, that, one of the great things about an, an array telescope like the SKA is that... You can turn it on a bit at a time? You can, yeah. You can turn it on a bit at a time, and that's the plan. Um, so maybe within two years of you know construction really getting going, we'll start to see scientific results. But the, um, the complete 
telescope will not be operational until 2028. So we've got six years to wait before we see the full, its full range of capabilities. Mm. And hopefully uh, it will provide exciting news like the James Webb Space Telescope because uh, hasn't that been just one of the the big success stories of 2022 in astronomy? And we we might as well move straight on to that because yet yet another discovery has been announced by the James Webb uh, Telescope. Uh, And and, uh, this is... um, uh, well, I'll let you explain. I, I have read this story from a few sources yeah. uh, over the last week or so, but uh, it looks like it it can see through things that that um, were blocking our view, and we're making these uh, amazing discoveries because it's it's unveiling the universe in in some respects. That's right. Um, so this this particular research, which has come from the uh, Astrophysical Institute in the Canaries, in Instituto de Astrofisica de Canarias. Uh, and I used to have quite a lot to do with the uh, people there. It's um, the Canary Islands uh, Astrophysical Institute. Of course, the Canary Islands have many big telescopes. Uh, on Teide, which is uh, uh, on, on, on the main sorry, the, the main island. Uh, mm. The island of La Palma has the observatory there that, in fact, has telescopes I used to work on quite a lot. Um, so... It is uh, it is a, a very active organisation, and what they've done. Some of the scientists from that uh, institute have uh, basically taken James Webb telescope images of galaxy clusters, and there's one in particular that they've been studying, which is called SMAX J zero two three dot three minus seven three two seven. Don't forget that. Uh, yeah, I already have. <laughs> so, well, <yeah. laughs> Um, and they've so so what they've done is they've looked um, not just at the galaxies in that cluster, but at the space between the galaxies, uh, and so um, by analysing a really faint background light uh, within the cluster, they've they've essentially identified a population of what we call intra-cluster stars, stars that mm. uh, probably been spat out of the individual galaxies by <clears throat> by their velocity. Uh, and <clears throat> excuse me. And so the, um, uh, the, the this is represents a remarkably large population of uh, of stars. Uh, but because it, it's just this sort of thin layer of stars that are that are that are there in the cluster, because they're they're just individual stars rather than galaxies themselves, which are much much brighter, and of course concentrations of hundreds of billions of stars. Uh, so you've got this this very very faint background glow. Um, it's probably impossible to detect it from the ground because, as you know, we've talked about this before. The night sky itself has its has its own natural brightness, yeah. um, and that brightness it comes from principally uh, uh, the uh, atoms in the upper atmosphere, sort of relaxing after a hard day in the. Uh, they emit this glow, which we call the sky glow. And these, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, these new detections uh, of this faint background of stars from the JWST, the, the web, um, the brightness of that is less than 1% of the brightness of the natural sky background here on Earth. Uh, so that would make it a very difficult task to, to measure from the ground. But put a telescope in space and you get rid of all that natural sky glow and lo and behold uh, this uh, population of stars has been revealed and it's telling these researchers about um, the way uh, 
probably galaxy mergers have taken place within the cluster. You know, if you if you imagine uh, galaxies colliding together, as ours will do with the Andromeda galaxy in a few billion years, imagine that process. Then um, you're going to get stars spilling out into the uh, into the background sky, and that's apparently what we're seeing. Yeah, that's quite extraordinary. And I suppose um, the, the sensitivity of James Webb and being off-planet gives it so many advantages that, uh, as you said, you can't detect from Earth-based observations because um, of the brightness of the sky. I suppose that equates, uh, like if this only makes up 1% of the uh, brightness of the sky, uh, it, it equates to the sensitivity of uh, of the um, um the cluster in Western Australia picking up a mobile phone on Mars. Yeah, that's right. It's a, it's a similar thing, it's, isn't it? It is. It, that's exactly right. It's the same thing. Square kilometre array sees a phone on Mars. Uh, the James Webb Telescope sees this 1%, you know, brightness of, uh, 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 or oh, it would be 1% if you were observing it from the ground. Mm, that's quite stuff. amazing. Um, yeah. And good work from uh, the IAC, the, the uh, you know, Institute in the Canary Islands. They do great stuff there. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you've got to wonder where it'll end. I mean, this thing's only been going for a few months and, and so many things have been discovered. Yeah, and... I, I did a talk last night here in Adelaide on, about the James Webb Telescope and that was one of the questions. When's it going to end? How long will it yeah. last? It just started. Uh, yeah, it's only just started, but it's a great question. And, in fact, the lifetime of the web is dictated by the fuel it has left for it to, to do the station keeping, to keep it at the uh, at, in its orbit around the L2, the Lagrange, second Lagrange point. Mm. Um, and uh, my recollection from when the telescope was, was basically installed in its service position is that whilst they expected it to have a lifetime of about 10 years, they'd saved so much fuel on the journey out there that they now push that up to 20 years so oh wow uh, i think we've got a long time ahead to look at what's coming from the web uh i think uh, some of the discoveries that we might get from it will be just mind-bending i'm really sure yeah we've only started only just sort of scratched the surface to yeah. this point in time yeah. and already it's just thrown up so many amazing discoveries uh, what will happen when it runs out of um, juice will it just float off into the never never um it will probably wind up in a in a, some sort of stable orbit around that lagrange point ah. um uh, and and it it will join other defunct spacecraft there uh, because gaia which is a european uh, astrometry satellite uh, that too is around the l2 point and eventually that will run out of juice too it's doing a great job at the moment but so there'll be this um sort of orbiting cluster of very expensive hardware uh, mm. one and a half million kilometers from earth uh, and they'll probably just stay there because i don't think there's a, you, you know when you look at the cost effectiveness of going out and trying to tank them up with fuel a bit it, it doesn't really work it's better just to build a new one and put it into another orbit yeah well, it's probably cheaper. And by then, the technology will have advanced, so it's probably better building a new one than it is trying to gas up an old one. Yeah, and and there still remains the 
the possibility that you know there might be damage to the to the James Webb telescope because of uh, micrometeoroid impacts. There's already yeah. that ding in the mirror that you and I talked about some months ago, uh, which doesn't affect the performance. Uh, but I, I did notice recently that um, the prediction was that there will be about two micrometeoroid impacts per month uh, in that location, and that's about what they're seeing. Yeah. All right. Well, after 20 years, that adds up to a lot of hits. Yeah, it does. Yeah. That's right. Mm, all right. Uh, if you do want to follow up on that story, uh, the paper has been published in the Astrophysical Journal Letters. This is Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Let's take a little break from the show to talk about our fabulous sponsor, NordVPN. Now, you know where I stand on the use of a virtual private network. It keeps you safe and secure when you're browsing online, particularly if you're using public Wi-Fi which is all over the place these days. And NordVPN comes with incredible support. They are well-backed and uh, rightly so. They've got the best product in the business. And right now, as a Space Nuts listener, uh, there's an exclusive deal available to you. It's a, it's a big saving on NordVPN for Christmas. Now, uh, first thing I'll tell you is that they have a 30-day money-back guarantee, so they're very confident about their product. So go to the URL, nordvpn.com slash space nuts. That's nordvpn.com slash space nuts. When you see that page, you click on the get the deal button, which I am doing right now, and it brings up all your options. There's a two-year plan, a one-year plan, a monthly plan. Of course, the longer time frame you pay for, the lower the monthly cost. But uh, they have all sorts of options. Uh, of course, every plan gives you secure high-speed VPN, malware protection, and tracker and ad blocker protection. But if you go for, say, the um, next option, you can get cross-platform password, password management, which is really, really handy. I absolutely love that tool, keeping all your passwords locked up tight. You don't have to remember them. They're just always there. They also have a data breach scanner. But if you want to go the whole hog and get their top-of-the-line system, one terabyte of encrypted cloud storage on top of all that. And you can go with a two-year plan, a one-year plan, or a monthly plan. But as I said, if you go for the two-year plan, all the prices drop significantly. And right now, they're offering you four months extra for free. So if you buy a two-year plan, you get two years and four months and so on. So check it out uh, today at nordvpn.com slash space nuts. That's nordvpn.com slash space nuts. Get the deal. It is really worthwhile. Now back to the show. Okay, we checked all four systems and in with a go. Space nuts. Now, Fred, let's head to Mars because uh, this is probably um, a huge story in the scheme of things because we've always thought of Mars as a dead, cold world. But uh, there's been indications in recent times that something's going on. They're finding um, evidence that there, there may be activity beneath, beneath the surface, surface, although it was thought for a while that that might just be remnant from, remnants from its pre-existing life. But now it does look like there is um, some geology happening uh, beneath the surface of Mars, and this could explain some of the mysteries that have been discussed in recent times. Yeah, that's right, and uh, it, it, it is a really great story. So, mm. um, you you and I have spoken many times about the Insight 
uh, lander, uh, the little lander that's um, in Mars's equatorial region that um, that had its its own seism- seismometer uh, to measure volcanic activity. Sorry, to measure earthquake activity, uh, as well as the ill-fated thermometer that was supposed to be dug into the ground but never quite made it. Yeah, that's right. Um, and and it turns out that Insight is in a place. Uh, there has been recent geological activity, uh, and a lot of the evidence from this. It, well, first of all, it comes from Insight itself uh, by m- measuring the, the seismographic record. Uh, you can tell where stuff is happening beneath the surface, and sure. it turns out that a, a lot of that stuff is happening quite locally. It's not sort of global in in its uh, in its activity, um, but you you can also um, tie in with this uh, research from the several orbiting spacecraft uh, like Mars Express, the European one, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter and NASA spacecraft, because these have all got uh, uh, basically uh, ground, um, Not some of them have got ground penetrating radar, but they've, they've got a radar equipment that you map the height of features on Mar- on the Martian surface. Yeah. And it turns out that the area where Insight landed. It's a region called Elysium Planitia. Uh, Mm. It's a big plain, hence the name Planitia. Uh, It turns out that that is roughly a mile higher, 1.6 kilometres, than its surrounding terrain. So it's been bulged upwards. Yeah. And that's also supported by uh, evidence uh, of these, you know, remarkable long cracks that there are in the surface, features that uh, that just look like the surface having split. Um, mm. And add to that uh, some evidence of volcanic activity. Uh, there, there, are, there are sort of volcanic ash fields in this same area in Elysium Planitia uh, that suggest that there was a volcanic explosion as recently as 53,000 years ago. <laughs> That's not very long in the scheme of things. That's exactly right. Um, uh, one of the um, uh, one of the scientists who's done this research, which is actually at the Lunar Planetary Lunar and Planetary Laboratory at the University of Arizona, uh, said uh, that is in geological time. That's essentially yesterday, uh, twenty three thousand yeah. years ago, which is about right. Um, but that's you know really. Interesting, and, and I should mention, Andrew, that um, we're, we're talking here about the, the lowland area of Mars. This is the, the, the whole northern hemisphere is, is lower in elevation than the southern hemisphere, where we've got all these mountains and craters uh, and things of that sort. Uh, so um, the the uh, uh, Elysium Planitia is a bulge in this lowland region, mm. um, and. The way this is being interpreted now, and the other thing that's folded into this, again, from orbiting spacecraft, you can actually measure the gravity field. Uh, and there are apparently details in that gravity field that suggest, along with all these other pieces of evidence, that, yes, there is um, a, a, a magma plume, uh, basically uh, a mantle plume, 
uh, very like the one that gave rise to the Hawaiian Islands here on Earth, the mantle plume, where you've got hot stuff in the Earth's mantle, which is the bit between the core and the crust. Um, and, the, and that poked through in Hawaii uh, to make the Hawaiian Islands. And of course, because of plate tectonics, uh, the, the, you get a chain of islands rather than just one big volcano. Yeah. Uh, Mars doesn't have plate tectonics, and we know that giant mantle plumes have existed before because the biggest volcanoes in the solar system are on Mars. And that's mm. because they never moved. They just stayed put for probably hundreds of millions of years while the mantle plume spewed stuff out onto them, making these gigantic volcanoes. And it looks as though that process is still going on. Uh, yeah. All the evidence points to um, a, a mantle plume, possibly uh, something like 4,000 kilometres wide. This is not a small plume. Uh, underneath the crust of Mars uh, that's produced all this, um, you know, the, the, the volcanic activity, the recent volcanic activity, the cracks in the surface, uh, the elevation uh, a mile higher than, uh, than the rest of the landscape. So really quite remarkable and telling us exactly, uh, as you've said in the intro, that Mars is still active. Mm. And it actually, uh, in many ways, it's... Um, it's an encouragement for the possibility of finding living organisms on Mars because a mantle plume like that is actually hot enough uh, beneath the surface to drive uh, very, fairly widespread melting of the ice that we know exists under the surface of Mars. And if you've got um, you know, periods where there is effectively liquid water maybe embedded in the surface of Mars, um, the mantle plume just maybe there might be microbes in there that we might find one day wouldn't that be exciting yeah. and uh, there's an image on the story i'm looking at uh, from the Euros european space agency's mars express that shows one of those splits you were talking about yes and that's that's what it looks like. it just looks like you've torn apart uh, torn apart a piece of cake it's just yeah you know <laughs> um, I, I, or a brownie a brownie a, brownie. a rusty brownie <laughs> Um, yeah, you might have to explain that because I think brownies are peculiarly uh, Australian. No, I thought they were fairly American, but, um, you know, just yeah, a... Okay, yes. Yeah, so if you've got a piece of cake and you just bend it like that and splits through the top, that's more or less what it looks like. Yeah. Um, it, it just reminded me, though, of, of one of the other pieces of evidence here that um, that this uh, volcanic activity, or this activity is recent. And that is that when you look at, uh, remember I said that it's bulged up by something like a mile. Uh, mm. When you look at craters sort of towards the edge of that, they're actually tilted, which tells you that the craters are more ancient than this bulging. The bulging is a, yeah. is a more recent phenomenon. That's really, that's a key piece of evidence, isn't it? It is, yeah. 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 I, I'm, very, I'm very excited by this because, um, you know, there's, there's been all these, you know, they've detected, uh, what is it, methane? pockets on mars at certain times yes, is it and, right. and still a... yeah and they couldn't explain them they've detected uh, mars quakes and some of them couldn't be explained as being impacts by meteors or anything like that uh, but now it looks like they have found well we call it a smoking gun we could call it that <laughs> couldn't we maybe once in a while, you know, maybe at some point we might see an eruption on mars which will be yeah. an astonishing thing wouldn't it be amazing? Yeah, yeah. it would be. Yeah, and, of course, we're, we're getting our own fair share of eruptions on Earth at the moment. The biggest volcano on, on the planet yeah. is currently erupting on the big island of Hawaii near the uh, town of Hilo. Yeah. Uh, and um, I, I, I see 
I see today that they've called out the National Guard, so it's getting serious. Yep. And my track record continues, Fred. I don't know if I've told you this before, but every time Judy and I have visited a volcano, the darn things erupted within <laughs> a few months of us being there. Happened at, happened at Kilauea. We went to Kilauea and yeah. three months later it blew its top. Yeah. Uh, we went to Mount Yasa in Vanuatu and three months later it blew its top. <laughs> We sailed past Mount Stromboli the other day. <laughs> Look what it happened. went off last week. Yeah, um, so it's all your fault, Andrew. It is, yes. Yeah. We're the harbingers of death. <laughs> Charming. Well, yes. it certainly adds a new dimension to space nuts. Um, it, it, uh, I just think it's one of those weird coincidences. Uh, and, of course, we went up onto Mount Etna, so just spend. don't go there for a few months no. would be my advice. Yeah, that's we right. We were there. We'll stay it could be... Uh, <laughs> Although it, it erupted two months before we went on it. Ah, looks so a bit ahead of time there. I'm, I might reverse the trend, but we went past Mount Stromboli twice. It's it's a um, it's an island, but it's yes. technically a submarine volcano, yeah. like White Island and a, and a yeah. few others. Uh, so yeah, but it it actually caused uh, I think part of the mountain slid into the into the Mediterranean and caused a 1.5 meter tsunami. Yeah, quite yeah. Um, quite amazing and spectacular pictures I've seen of it, which is uh, extraordinary, but not as spectacular as what's happening on Mars, I might say. I think that's that's a story that I, I'm very thrilled to hear because, um, yeah, the evidence was starting to stack up that it was not a dead world and now it appears not to be. So that's pretty exciting stuff. Uh, now, Fred, uh, very quickly, let's uh, talk about the, um, the latest with Artemis 1. It's, uh, I believe, on its way back home. It is. That's or will right. be it's, soon. Yeah, it's now left the uh, gravitational field of the moon uh, and is dominated by uh, Earth's gravity. Uh, I, I, I can't remember the expected uh, splashdown date, but I think it was uh, the December 11th. 11th? Yeah, December that's 11th. I which is and it'll come down in the Pacific, I think. They, yeah, um, that's right. It's not yeah. very far away. So, um, zooming home as we speak, as uh, it seems that everything has gone uh, absolutely swimmingly. Uh, we've had lovely images, as you mentioned uh, uh, earlier on, uh, extraordinary images uh, of both the moon and the earth, uh, with the moon looking bigger than the earth, naturally, because. Mm. Uh, that's that's a bizarre picture. I yeah, mean, yeah. You, you do not see that very often, but they've got an, uh, a beautiful shot from one of the onboard cameras of the Orion capsule pointed back to Earth and the moon to the right, and the moon is bigger, that, which yeah. you don't see very often. That's in uh, that's on the cosmosmagazine.com website if you want to look at it. It's yeah. really good, really good picture. And it, And it's... That's because the you know the spacecraft went a long way beyond the moon. In fact, yeah, uh, in its in its mission. So, yes, really, uh, really quite amazing stuff. I think I know why it's been such a perfect mission and nothing's gone wrong. Go on then. No, pe- no people on on board. Well, that's <laughs> no one right. there to stuff it up. Nobody. No, that's dis- that's so disrespectful. I. I, I <laughs> It's nothing to do with it, but it just it does show that they they really got it all perfectly worked out. Um, the human factor is all on the ground, and uh, it's been a magnificent mission. Indeed. Just got to get it back down to earth now, and then um, yeah, collect all that data they've been absorbing. But uh, yeah, and it, it it does pave the way for future Artemis yeah. missions and putting people and the first um, 
woman and the first uh, Native American woman on on the moon and establishing a base. It's really starting to get yes. super exciting it is in exciting. terms of yeah. what comes next. So yeah, we're all pretty thrilled, I think. Indeed. But, um, yeah, so uh, just a few days uh, from now before she splashes down. This is Space Nuts, uh, talking astronomy and space science. You're listening to Space Nuts, the podcast about astronomy and space science with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Pretty sure that was your niece, Fred. (laughs) Maybe it was. <laughs> no, could have been. Now it's um, time to answer some questions. Now we, we got a question from our live audience uh, via YouTube from uh, from Ben. Is that trophy cabinet getting bigger, Andrew? I don't know. Is it? Let me have a look. No, unfortunately not. We just finished the championships at the local club and I think I finished fourth in one of my grades. So not, not overly spectacular. I mean, fourth's okay, but... I'd rather, you know, fourth, last, you still lose. But that that's golf. You lose 99% of the time. But, um, yeah, I, I've got a couple of extra pieces of uh, volcano over there. So, you know, I suppose it is getting bigger with, with you know, non-sporting trophies. Let's call it that. Uh, thanks for the question, Ben. Um, <laughs> Actually, while you're talking about that, yeah, could I just... It's not a trophy, but I must show you something uh, for, okay. for people on YouTube. Hang on a sec. Oh, all right. Exciting. It's uh, just like live radio with yeah. pictures. <laughs> I'm sorry for people who are listening, uh, but I was um, at uh, – I gave a talk at the Astronomical Society of South Australia yesterday, oh, yeah. and they presented me with this, and I don't know whether you can read it, but it is uh, a picture, a photograph <laughs> – of asteroid, uh, whatever its number is, I can never remember, 5691 Fred Watson, and it's oh, captioned wow. Asteroid at Large, <laughs> which I like very much. So that's going to go on my opposite. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, those things are so special, aren't they, when people go the extra mile to, yeah. I was extremely honoured to. I'm sure you were. I would have been tickled too. Yeah. Except they would have called me Fred and I would have thought that was weird. Anyway. <laughs> Um, now, good. <laughs> let us uh, sort out some questions. And uh, firstly, we have a, a, a th- these are both sort of what if questions, which I love. And this one uh, firstly comes from Steve. Hello, Space Nuts. This is Steve from Alaska. My question has to do with the sun and the end of its life. DART has me thinking about the future. If we felt like doing so, maybe it's possible in some untold number of years to fling celestial objects into the sun. What are the dynamics of extending the sun's lifespan by doing so? If we were to fling Saturn into the sun, would the sun live for an additional 10,000 years, 100,000 years? What kind of time are we talking about? What about asteroids or Neptune? And what about Pluto? I mean, no one will miss Pluto, right? (laughs) Thanks, and I enjoy listening to the show. (laughs) Thank Uh, you, Steve. Oh, I think you've hit a nerve there. (laughs) Oh, dear. Now, Now, that's an interesting question. I mean, if we had the technology to drag Pluto out of orbit and chuck it at the sun, it'd probably mess other stuff up. But would it extend the life of the sun? Um, it, it's a great question. It's got a, there's a bit of science involved in it as well. Um, mm. No, well, I think the answer is uh, probably not, because what the sun needs to extend its life is more hydrogen, just raw hydrogen. Yeah. And whilst the gas giants certainly have a 
proportion of hydrogen in their atmospheres. We've got a lot of other stuff as well. And so it's, um, it's unlikely that throwing, even throwing Jupiter in would actually extend the life of the sun. Uh, in fact, it probably just it probably have the, exactly the opposite effect. It would be, you know, a case of uh, solar indigestion, I think. And, uh, <laughs> you know, you might get all kinds of spectacular uh, solar uh, we, we could call it gas giant gastric. Yeah, yeah, yes, that's right. There's a pond there somewhere, isn't there? Gastric giant, yeah. that's, that's probably what it will be, yeah. Or gastro giant, there you are. Um, but but the, the science in this is interesting because um, there's certainly been measurements um, made of the chemical components of stars which provide evidence that they've gobbled up their planets um, um, I, I'm trying to remember the exact uh, circumstances in which that happens, but uh, mm. certainly, uh, and it, you and I may have even talked about it on Space Nuts, that um, some stars uh, where there is a suggestion that these are old stars uh, with particular characteristics, but those characteristics are modified because there's, there's the evidence that they've gobbled up perhaps silica and things of that sort which uh, which make up planets for example so so that the, there is a there's, there's a real um, you know a real scientific uh, st- story here to the uh, to, to the idea of, uh, of of suns and planets not being always entirely separated <clears throat> so well well done steve it's a great question yeah i'm i'm interested in your take on chucking pluto into the sun i mean <laughs> the sun um, would Barely notice, unfortunately. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you're right. Yes, um, we've got plenty of time to figure out how to keep it alive because it's it's going to be another billion years before it's um, going to change the Earth. Yeah, I think a a, a more profitable uh, line of approach might be how do we get away from it? Because keeping mm-hmm. it alive uh, is really not on the cards at the moment. They they figured out how to do it in the movie Sunlight. Oh, did they? Okay. Oh, well, yeah. that, that must be possible then. They, they um, I think they filled a, a spaceship with nuclear weapons and just right. flew it into the centre. Yeah. Don't think that'll work. <laughs> but it's science fiction, so everything works in science so fiction. The sun uses up, um, just to put it in context, I think this is the right number. Uh, the sun uses up 6 million tonnes of hydrogen every second. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know... <laughs> Think about it. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. I, I, even though it's uh, so close to us, and the light takes what eight and a half minutes to get to us, yeah. uh, and and we just accept it as the norm. It, it is rather an extraordinary piece of um, piece of, of space. Yeah, <laughs> and and that's why we study it because it it represents examples of uh, other stars that are so far away. Uh, we can we can learn what's ha- perhaps happening there by studying this particular star and, um, yeah, we get, we've got close-up opportunities to, to learn. I, I read the other day that they actually discovered a planet that was in the Goldilocks zone of its parent star and it was the same, it was 1.2 times the size of Earth which uh, is an exciting discovery. Only one downer, it's a red giant. Yeah, there's probably lots of solar flares coming from it or stellar flares coming from it, yeah. So not quite what we were looking for. 
near enough. So, I mean, it, it is extraordinary that we're discovering these things now about the size of Earth, which is the challenging yeah. part. So. Yeah, and, and I'm sure there are squillions of them out there. It's there just is, finding them and you know, keep analysing, keep finding, keep cataloguing, and then trying to learn. But the search continues for Earth 2.0. This one looked promising. I think I think it was in the Kepler system. Okay. Um, but, yes, um, anyway, Steve, thank you so much. Uh, yes, it doesn't look like uh, even Pluto could save the sun. But then again, when you look at the mythology behind Pluto, why would it want to? Really? <laughs> uh, thank you, Steve. Now let's move on to a question from our favourite terraforming expert, Martin. Hello, Space Nuts. Martin Berman Gorvine here from Potomac, Maryland, USA, writer extraordinaire in many genres, with yet another madcap terraforming scheme. At least he's honest. Could you take an ice moon, such as Europa, and if the ocean beneath it is lifeless, electrolyze the water and use the oxygen to make breathable air with the ice over it, holding it in, perhaps with some additional support for that icy roof? Failing that, could the ice at least serve as a radiation shield for colonies established under plastic bubbles at the bottom of the ocean? Love you guys. Can't <laughs> wait for the answer. Berman Gorvine, over and out. All right. Thank you, Martin. By the way, I've nearly finished your book, which you sent me, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm that far through it. I'm really enjoying it. The Double Life, it's called. And I've even got an old-fashioned bookmark, which they made me in Italy. So I've been. So I'm up to chapter twenty of Martin's book, The Double Life. So uh, I'm really, really enjoying it. I, I, I'm busting to know what's going to happen because it's all getting very interesting. So thank you for that. I've enjoyed it thoroughly. Now, what about the idea of um, uh, of an ice moon and uh, doing all that stuff that Martin suggested? Yeah, I love it. <laughs> but where's the but? I don't know. I um, so you've got to it'd be, so you, it'd be cold though, wouldn't it? Be yeah, too cold. Yeah, be, it would be. It would be cold. I mean, you'd need um, uh, you know, if you were going to, I hate to use the word, but colonize one of the moons of Jupiter, um, you would need to do extraordinary things uh, to uh, to uh, allow humans to live. And maybe plastic bubbles on the rocky surface underneath the ocean would be one way of doing it. But I, I, my only concern is um, why would you do that? Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, the, uh, I mean, Martin, Martin points out quite correctly that you, you would get some radiation shielding uh, from the ice crust above you, which mm. you would certainly need because the environment of Jupiter is very, very high in radiation uh, with subatomic particles, not just from the sun like we've got here in the Earth's vicinity, but also from, they come from EO, um, the, the volcanic volcanism on EO kind of releases subatomic particles into the into Jupiter's vicinity and actually causes, um, I think, it, it, you know, it causes a, a radiation footprint on the planet itself because the radiation is so intense. So uh, it's not a good place really for humans to be to start with. Um, and I think, once again, I'm always thrown back onto this idea that if you're going to do mega engineering of such a large scale, 
uh, the place to do it is on a spacecraft in space. You build yeah. your own. Um, and yes, uh, all right, you've, you've got the liquid water on your for example, uh, and you can electrolyze uh, that into oxygen and hydrogen. Uh, but there the, the would be other ways of providing a reservoir of sustainability material, and put it that way, uh, with, for example, a halo world, you know, one of these gigantic rotating wheels uh, which uh, provide gravity through rotation uh, and, and let you almost build an environment similar to planet Earth. Not only that, you can then take it wherever you want to. You can journey through interstellar space for 10,000 years and turn up at another star system. Yeah. That might be the way it'll happen in the long term, Yeah, I imagine. I think so too. I mean, they made that video game called Halo, which has been turned into a TV series, yeah. and, and that's exactly what they had, those th- these Halo rings that were all, um, you know, self-contained environments, basically. I mean, they turned out to be weapons to destroy human beings, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes, that's the downside, of course. Yeah, well, it was in that story. But, you know, the Master Chief saved the day. But, um, gee, I'm starting to sound very geekish, but... Yeah, I, I, I think that might um, ultimately be when, when it comes to humans migrating to other stars and other planets, other worlds or whatever, that probably would be the way to do it because we're, we're probably going to be capable of creating a, an environmental-type spaceship that can sustain generations of life yes, that's right. faster than we can come up with a way of travelling fast enough not to have yeah. to do that. <laughs> yeah. Does that make sense? Quite. Good, because I forgot what I was talking about. (laughs) So what was the answer to Martin? Um, Uh, Could work, but probably not worth it. I like it. No, I bet bet it turns up in one of his books, though. Oh, for sure. It's not in this one. (laughs) No, this this one's a bit more down to earth than that. But, yeah, yeah, I bet it will. I'm sure. All right. Uh, Thank you, Martin. Lovely to hear from you again. Uh, And um, thanks for your book. I'll um, I'll do a review when I've completely finished it, which will be in six months or so. (laughs) No, I will because I'm very slow reader. Well, I've got I've got I've got three going at the moment. Uh, There's another book by a young bloke who listens to us, uh, Obi. Hi, Obi. Um, I've friended him on Facebook and I bought his book. Uh, He's written a a book about. uh, where we're headed uh, in terms of um, uh, of uh, the, the space travel and, and uh, um, some of the things that we might achieve in the not too distant future over the next twenty years in terms of um, moving, you know, putting people on Mars, etc. It's really good, and you know, thirteen years old, and he's written a book and published it on Amazon. I think that, that's extraordinary. Well, well done, Obi. Yeah. So so very good. Uh, I'm, so I'm reading that at the moment, um, which uh, is on my iPad. So I can't um, grab it and tell you the, the exact title, which has escaped me for the moment. But I will next week. Uh, so thanks to everyone who contributed. Uh, don't forget to visit us on the Space Nuts website, spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io. And while you're there, you can um, catch up on uh, episodes of Space Nuts and Astronomy Daily. Uh, Fred makes the occasional appearance on Astronomy Daily and he doesn't even know it. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, uh, every time something new pops up, we we 
put some grabs of, uh, of Fred into the mix. So listen out for that. Don't forget to visit the Space Nuts shop and don't forget social media. We're all over that. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook, a couple of different ways. The Space Nuts podcast group on Facebook is always good to uh, to get involved in because it's just um, a user-generated account that uh, gives people a chance to talk about whatever they want to talk about, publish their astronomical photos, ask questions. It's fabulous. Andrew, Fred, before, we, uh, before we wrap up, yep. um, I want to give a shout-out to two lovely people I met uh, last week. Yes, yes, indeed. In, uh, in Fremantle, which is a seaside town near Perth, uh, completely by chance, my colleague and I uh, went to a restaurant called the Bibbulaka in Fremantle, a very nice restaurant, and found two Space Nuts fans, Wow, uh, uh, Suna and Anthony. So you did find both of them. Yep, <laughs> run the restaurant. <laughs> two fans. That's right. Our only two fans. across. And uh, um, what I what I especially loved was uh, when I had my cup of coffee at the end. Um, they put SN into the foam at the top of it. Ah, uh, space now. So Isn't that well great? done, Suna and Anthony. Thank you very much for your for the delightful meal that we had while we were there. And hope to run into you again sometime. Fremantle. That's lovely. It is a beautiful place, yeah. All right. Oh, that's so nice. All right, Fred, we've got to go. Thanks so much. Talk to you again soon. All right. Catch you next time. Uh, Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Thanks to Hugh in the studio for pushing all the buttons and uh, keeping the coffee hot, whatever it is he does. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the very next edition of Space Nuts. Bye-bye. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. Okay, we're done. And thanks for watching if you've or listening or whatever it is you did uh, live. So... Appreciate it. Uh, We'll talk to you next week.